Oh, I know it's terrible and me must be. But you don't know what it is to look white and be black. Those are the famous last words of this week's subject from her most recognizable role in the Universal Pictures 1934 drama, Imitation of Life, based on the 1933 Fanny Hearst novel of the same name. Hi again, and welcome back to The Blacklist. I'm Mariah, your host. And this first season has been spent exploring the black women from Hollywood's formative years who've inspired my passion for film and acting and whose work and influence often go unnoticed and unappreciated. But I won't allow that. So far, we've discussed an Academy Award winner, the first glamorous black movie star to be signed to a long-term studio contract, and a woman who was, to quote Lena Horne, the mother to us all. And today we will continue that by discussing a woman who has been called the first resistant black anti-hero. And in a 1926 publication of the Pittsburgh Courier, a prominent black newspaper, featured a photo with the headline, White Actresses Who Opened with Robinson and Bledsoe on Broadway During Week. The actresses were Latisse Howell, who was opening the musical Deep River with Jules Bledsoe, and an actress who they thought was Edith Warren and who they thought was white, who was starring in the musical Black Boy with Paul Robeson. This is an actress who puzzled moviegoers and press alike with her looks all too often and much to her disdain, and had her on-screen persona merge with her private life in ways she never agreed to and ways she tried hard to fight against, even given the political climate and the politics of Hollywood that were not quite as liberal as they presented themselves. An activist for the golden ages. This is the story of Freddie Washington and the burden of passing. Frederica Carolyn Washington was born December 23, 1903, in Savannah, Georgia, to parents Robert T. Washington and Harriet Walker Ward Washington. Both parents were mixed wraiths. And so Frederica had fine hair and very, very light skin and green eyes. She was considered a white mulatto, meaning that her skin and features allowed her to pass for a white woman. This would become a sore spot in her life and career. I realize that it's become a common theme to discuss black women who can pass for white, and while it is unintentional, the pervasiveness of this problem is still a subject of contention within the black community and the film industry today, so I feel it's important to discuss. Frederica, often called Freddie, was the oldest of nine siblings. Her father, Robert T. Washington, was a postal worker, and her mother, Harriet Walker Ward Washington, was a dancer once upon a time. Freddie's mother died in 1915. She was just 30 years old, and Freddie was just 11. After her mother's death, and as a part of the Great Migration, Freddie's father moved all five of his children north to Pennsylvania. Freddie, being the oldest girl in the family and the second oldest child, helped her father raise her younger siblings, Isabel, Rosebud, and Robert. They lived with their grandmother, whom they often called Big Mama, Freddie's father remarried, but his second wife died while pregnant, while Freddie and her sister Isabel were sent to a covenant in Cornwall Heights, Pennsylvania, known for taking in African-American and Native American orphans, St. Elizabeth's Covenant School for Colored Girls, which is near Philadelphia for context. Freddie's father would go on to marry a third and final time. The marriage would produce four more children, giving Freddie a total of eight siblings from her father's marriages. Freddie was forced to leave the covenant due to financial strains that schooling both her sister and her placed on the Washington family, and she was forced to go to work. 
Then she and Isabel headed to New York to live with her grandmother, but she did eventually go back to school and graduate from Julia Richmond High School. After this, Freddie enrolled in two professional programs, the School of Dramatic Writing and the Christopher School of Languages. But with the financial strains of a black family living in New York City, work took precedence over school. Freddie worked several jobs, including a stockroom clerk at a popular New York City dress boutique where she was earning $17 a week, and alongside her father as a typist and a bookkeep at an African-American record company called the Black Swan Record Company, which was home to many popular black blues singers, including Ethel Waters, Trixie Smith, Ma Rainey, and Louis Armstrong. The raw talent and black success that surrounded a young, black, southern girl was intoxicating. And the financial strain of being a young, black woman in New York City only furthered her relentless ambition. It was at Black Swan that Freddie found out about the audition for a new, all-black Broadway musical, Shuffle Along. From the creative minds of U.B. Blake on the piano, Noble Sissy writing lyrics, and F.E. Miller, Aubrey Lyles as the show's book writers— It had been nearly a decade without an all-black musical on Broadway. The First World War put a financial strain on artists and resurfacing racial tensions due to African-American men, who, I'll remind you, have served in every war that America has fought, coming home to receive less than respectful treatment for their selfless service, made it an area of contention. And without the promise of a profit, producers wouldn't touch it. But there was something special about Shuffle Along. It premiered on Broadway at Daly's 63rd Street Theater in 1921 and was an unprecedented success, with an original run of 504 performances. Unheard of for a musical of all black folks, but Shuffle Along was a hit. The tiny theater the show was housed in wasn't like Carnegie Hall or the Gershwin, so it was easy to miss. There was no orchestra pit for the show, and a young man by the name of William Grant Still, who was still going by Bill Still at the time, was the orchestra for the show, among other musicians, but he was the most notable and the most versatile of them all. He taught himself to play seven instruments and would switch between them, providing music for the show. The show was buzzed about in every corner of the city. The dancing, the singing, the unbelievably beautiful, talented black cast. But according to New York Age journalist Les Walton, who came to the Broadway production after seeing the show at the end of its pre-New York run while in Philly, the most revolutionary part of the show and what he was most nervous about was the romance. White people are often made uncomfortable through the display of black romance and sexuality. And Walton was interested to see the outrage that would surely erupt. But Walton, who was among one of the first journalists to review the show, called it pregnant with historical significance for anyone, conversant with ups and downs of colored theatrics and all the abortive yet well-intended efforts of the past, and said, I think Shuffle Along should continue to shuffle along at the 63rd Street Theater for a long time. Now, from what I've read, Shuffle Along was no progressive revolution. The show follows Sam and Steve, who both run crooked campaigns for mayor of a town called Jimtown, USA. And if one wins, he promises to appoint the other to chief of police. Hilarity ensues. Two black people fall in love on stage. They're singing, dancing, colorism, racism, and blackface minstrel elements because it was 1922, and the only way white audiences would have been comfortable being entertained by an all-black cast is if they darkened their skin in comical ways. Nonetheless, 
it broke records, replacing Blackbirds of 1928 as the longest-running Black show on Broadway with over 500 performances. It became a standard for Black shows on Broadway, was the first to show a sophisticated Black relationship. It caused traffic jams on West 63rd Street at Curtain Call and became one of the first shows to have Black people seated in the orchestra and not just the balcony. And it launched the careers of a 16-year-old Josephine Baker, Paul Robeson, and despite having no proper qualifications other than her striking beauty, Freddie Washington. Josephine Baker was stunning, even then, but her skin being darker than the other girls and her talent being much more realized made her a target of the other chorus girls' wrath. She once found all of her makeup dumped on the hallway floor outside of her dressing room. When Freddie found out about this, she demanded that Josephine's makeup be returned to his rightful place. This began a lifelong friendship between the two soon-to-be stars. Freddie's salary doubled, and she was now earning $35 a week instead of the $17 that she made as a typist. She was a part of the Honeysuckle Chorus, a group of young, beautiful, light-skinned black women, and a part of history. Shuffle Along started the long-practiced trend of casting light-skinned Black women in the chorus of Black musicals. It became a staple of the Black musical and entertainment, according to David Krasner, a noted theater professor and author. Shuffle Along was the topic of discussion in the Black community because, on the one hand, you have these amazing, beautiful, talented Black people having such great commercial and financial success in a white, male-dominated industry, and many influential Black artists like poet Langston Hughes celebrated it, saying it was the reason he wanted to go to Columbia. While other artists like Lena Horne spoke out against the show's stereotypes attributed to African Americans. Despite the objections from certain stars, the praise outweighed it, and Shuffle Along was undeniably a part of musical theater history and came up during the cusp of the Harlem Renaissance, and any upward movement for one is upward movement for all. Freddie performed in Shuffle Along for two years, from 1922 to 1924. Then she had smaller theatrical roles in which she would play the beautiful mulatto, dancing and singing seductively, until 1926 when Lee Schubert himself recommended Freddie to audition for a play that was being produced at his theater after seeing her at the infamous Club Alaban. She was cast alongside an already famous Paul Robeson for the first time. And though this rumor is unsubstantiated, Paul Robeson Jr. claims that this marked the beginning of a decades-long affair between Washington and Robeson. They start together in Frank Daisy's Black Boy. Um, Black Boy was a play about a prized Black fighter from Harlem who struggles with his rise to fame. Paul Robeson's character, Black Boy, is supposed to be modeled after Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight boxing champion. The play only ran for 37 performances. Freddie plays Irene, Black Boy's mistress, who gets him drunk and makes him lose a big fight. When Black Boy finds out, he threatened to murder her because of her role in compromising his success. But then he finds out that she is actually a Black woman and changes his mind. With his career basically over, Irene, of course, leaves him, and Black Boy says that his whole world was an elaborate illusion. But if you plan on searching for Freddie Washington and Black Boy, 
I'm sure you not get the results you were looking for because in the playbill, she is credited as Edith Warren because that sounds less black than Frederica Washington. The producers of the show made the decision to change her name to Edith Warren to trick the audience into thinking she was white. So when it is revealed later on in the play that she is a black woman who was pretending to be a white woman to trick black boy, the audience believes it more. And so as to make the audience more comfortable with the interracial relationship that was happening on stage, which was still pretty illegal in some places and definitely punished in other ways in most places. Make sense? Of course it doesn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense to Freddie either. The producers tried to explain to Freddie that this name change was just to help the audience more easily identify with her character because there is no way that the target audience for a play like this, which is just code for people who could actually afford to see theater, would have been able to connect and support a black woman playing a white one, even if she did have green eyes. So they pretended that she was white like many of the Hollywood studios did with their race films for much of the 20th century. Because when you mix races, you challenge the audience's idea of race in society. And no one likes to have their belief system shaken. And Hollywood and Broadway have never been exceptions. Nonetheless, Freddie didn't buy this explanation. And neither did the African-American press, who took issue with her being presented as a white woman. In the picture in the Pittsburgh Courier that I described at the beginning of the episode, in which Washington is misidentified as white, comes up again when the paper issued a statement on the mistake saying, the Metropolitan critics have taken her quite serious and have spoken highly of her efforts. Freddie even fooled Ye Scribe last week. When preparing our copy for the press, our picture came along, being lined up with Lottie Howell of Deep River, who is really Ofe, white, and having changed her name, we were not thinking and dubbed both white and passed on. It was not until the paper was off the press that we realized we had either paid a compliment or cast a reflection. We are not fully decided as yet just which. They are not fully decided as yet just which. I think this statement says a lot about the way black people viewed mixed race people during this time period. But also, this statement sums up her time in Black Boy and is the essential question of her time in the limelight. Even when I think I understand her, I'm thrown for a loop. But here's a tidbit that really gets me. When Black Boy opened out of town, the cast stayed at the DuPont Hotel, a segregated hotel, of course, and Freddie was accommodated with the white cast members and no black cast members received the kind of treatment that she received. Not even Paul Robeson, who played the titular character. And when she was asked about this, she simply stated, I only ask my money's worth. And when they know you're colored, they rob you of even that fair break. Fair. Understandable. But this is a woman who would spend her entire life fighting against the whiteness that was imposed on her, fighting against the people who thought that it was something she used to her advantage, fighting to own her blackness. But everything that happened with Black Boy, from her allowing the producers to change her name, to allowing the hotel managers to assume she was not black, to the character that she played on stage, opening the door for people to draw African-American women as deceptive and evil characters really foreshadowed what was to come in her career. And maybe she understood that. Maybe her next move was an attempt to regain control of her own narrative because with the sheer lack of multifaceted characters that she could play, she felt lost in America and did what many African-American stars would do when they felt there was no work and they couldn't play another character. 
she fled to Europe in 1927. After the opportunities for Broadway starts dry up, Freddie returned to her old stomping ground at the Club Alabam, a dance club in Manhattan which has been described as a place that catered to largely white and wealthy audiences' fantasies of the exotic and erotic other, including, but not limited to, a mythical old South of sensual delights and taboo interracial romance. With a chorus of beautiful young women, scantily dressed ranging in color from pure white to beautiful browns. When she first started working at the club after the tour of Shuffle Along ended, Freddie played a number of terribly offensive roles. But now that she had come back after some considerable successes, she had no interest in being in the chorus. In fact, she had no interest of staying at the club. She went back to form a partnership with a fellow club Alabama dancer, Al Moore, and they decided to take their act on the road, calling themselves Freddie and Moray. The pair specialized in ballroom dancing and created an act full of grandeur with costumes and choreography, especially in the tango. This act took New York by storm, becoming the first African-Americans to perform at the St. Regis Hotel, which is followed by the European tour because you gotta go where the work is and anywhere else is always better than where you are. The pair toured all over Europe, including Paris, Berlin, Monte Carlo, Hamburg, Tussle, to name a few. While in Germany, Otto Kahn, an investment banker millionaire, was so impressed with her talent and taken aback by her beauty that he offered to pay for her education as she would pretend to be a French woman, which Freddie declined. But situations like this were all too common for Freddie. While they were performing in London, Freddie taught Edward VIII, who was Prince of Wales at the time, to do the Black Bottom, a popular dance of the late 1920s. The pair enjoyed great success while in Europe and met people and saw things they may have never dreamed they could have, especially Freddie, growing up in small town Savannah, Georgia, but they returned to the States in December of 1928 because they always do. Freddie A. Murray had gained quite a bit of notoriety since leaving New York a year earlier. When they returned, they performed in the Broadway musical Great Day, music and lyrics by Vincent Yeoman, William Rose, and Edward Elskew. Then in the Tan Skin Revel in Connie's In Hot Chocolates, a popular all-black review in the popular in Harlem nightclub. With so much buzz surrounding her career, what came next was inevitable to anyone playing close enough attention. Freddie made her film debut in RKO Pictures' Black and Tan, a short musical film inspired by the composition Black and Tan Fantasy by Duke Ellington and his orchestra. The film follows Duke Ellington, who plays himself, struggling with his finances and struggling to secure gigs for his band. Freddie plays his wife, a critically acclaimed and successful dancer, a romantic role that is rumored to have been filled by her off-screen as well. When she is offered a job at a club, she secures a job for her husband's band as well. When it is revealed that she has a heart condition that dancing only intensifies, she dies on stage. And later the song Black and Tan Fantasy plays as we discover her death. This is one of the earliest instances where Washington's sheer beauty and grace are put on display for a larger audience. And I don't want to mince words here, but she is really, really, really beautiful and quite the dancer. The film is 
is nothing progressive by anyone's standards. There's some fun dance sequences and black tap dancers and beautifully tailored tuxes. But the narrative is nothing that hadn't been done before, only in Freddie Washington's case. And even though the film has nothing to do with her race, it's impossible not to impose on top of it the idea of the tragic mulatto who paid the ultimate price to save her destitute black boyfriend for love. She's scantily dressed and faint-looking during the scenes when she meets her demise, and though she's just secured jobs for her boyfriend and his entire band, there's a sense of helplessness that radiates from her. She's tired, but she can't give up this job because of the man she loves. And so you feel bad for this woman who looks white. She looks like a white woman. And so that villainizes and trivializes the relationship that she and Duke Ellington have on screen. What I'm trying to say is, this is only a prelude for what was to come and what was to be said and written about Freddie Washington, the actor, and the character she played. This film was inducted into the National Film Registry in 2015 and is available on YouTube, and though the quality isn't very great, it's worth a watch, as it marked the first screen appearance for not only Freddie Washington, but also for Duke Ellington. Of course, this set off a chain reaction, and several roles immediately followed, including the 1930 play Sweet Chariot, in which she played a secretary, described by newspapers as a well-educated outcast octoroon, and was out of a job just three performances later. And the musical that reunited her with the shuffle-along friend, Yubi Blake, and his orchestra, Singing the Blues, in which she played a woman described as a Lenox Avenue gold digger, which closed after only 45 performances, much to the chagrin of Washington, who thought it was the best Negro musical ever made, but it was not comforting to white audiences as Shuffle Along had been a decade earlier, so it had to go. But the ball was rolling for Freddie, and she soon received her greatest critical acclaim yet in Hall Johnson's Run Lil' Chillin', receiving praise from the NAACP executive director, Walter White, who referred to Freddie as a great artist among dozens of others who readily agreed. So in a little over 10 years, she had gone from a typist to a chorus girl to a featured Broadway actor to an internationally touring dancer to a critically acclaimed dramatic actress, and she hadn't even been in a full-length film. But then came 1933's Emperor Jones. The Emperor Jones is a 1920 play by Eugene O'Neill about an African-American emperor, Brutus Jones, who starts out as a Pullman porter, then kills a man in a dice game and escapes to a Caribbean island where he makes himself king. The play takes us through his flashbacks from the point of view of the emperor as he is overthrown and being hunted by his people. Now, the play has been lauded as one of the greatest American plays of the 20th century and broke barriers with the one of the first black leading men in a dramatic role. And it was Eugene O'Neill's first commercial success. The 1933 film was directed by black and tan director Dudley Scott, who was a friend of Eugene O'Neill's and had been trying to get this film made since it premiered over a decade earlier. It was not distributed by any of the major film studios, but rather by United Artists, an independent film studio founded and run by actors. It stars Paul Robeson as Brutus Jones and Freddie Washington as Undie, a character who was not a part of the original play, but was the invention of the film's screenwriter, Dubois Hayward. It needs to be stated, before I dive into my dissection of the film, that it is loosely based on O'Neill's play. Loosely. 
I'll make an attempt to be as objective as I can as I explain the film because the problems are clear. First of all, and for the first time in Freddie's career, she agreed to wear makeup to darken her complexion because the Hayes office decided that the romance between the two looked like the romance of a black man and a white woman, which was not allowed on screen per the production code rules. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Hayes Code, the simplest way to describe its rise to prominence is this. Hollywood was playing fast and loose in the 1920s with some rape trials and murder, lots of drinking, gambling, etc. And it started to affect the business. No well-respecting family wants to support artists and art that can't behave off screen. This led to the morality clause to be placed in star studio contracts saying that they were to behave morally, essentially, or at least in public. Uh, But it also led to the Hayes Code, named after William Hayes, head of the motion picture producers and distributors of America, who said that he protected the industry from attacks. So for decades, all movies had to be presented to the Hayes office. And if scenes seemed too risque or violent or anything the Hayes office didn't agree with, they had to be cut or reshot. And it could not be screened in theaters unless they had the Hayes stamp of approval. The funniest, or maybe the scariest, thing about this is that for a while, everyone looked at this as a joke. How the fuck are you going to tell me what I can and can't do on screen? But eventually, everyone fell in line. And the Hayes Code reigned in Hollywood for decades. But back to the Emperor Jones. Another scene that didn't live up to the Hayes Code of Approval was a scene in which Robeson's character kills a crazy white prison guard that also had to be cut because black-on-white violence was also strictly forbidden. And the worst offense was the cutting of the pivotal slave ship auction hallucinatory scene. It was also cut. A staple of the play and of the empirical character's self-inflicted downfall just cut from the film. The screenwriter added scenes to the beginning of the play to prologue it, which was not and is not uncommon when translating a stage play to a screenplay. But the blatant racism and sexism of this man come through in the earliest scenes of this film. That being said, the director and screenwriter had to submit the script to Eugene O'Neill to receive his approval. And Eugene O'Neill approved the script, even though it used the word nigger instead of negro, which was a problem Eugene O'Neill grappled with a decade earlier because the early versions of his play used the word nigger. It wasn't until Charles S. Gilpin, the first actor to play Brutus Jones, insisted on changing it from nigger to negro and colored because the use of the word nigger upset him and didn't help the creative process. O'Neill agreed, more or less, There was definitely some tension over that, but they moved forward with not using nigger, and a decade later, they're using the word again. Only now it's even less acceptable than it was before, so it's interesting that O'Neill was okay with this. But I think that the $30,000 that he received for the rights had something to do with his coercion, which today would be closer to $530,000. And Paul Robeson, who became one of the first African-American stars to have his name above the film's title, was earning close to $5,000 a week, which was fair to say the least. And it would be this film that would establish Paul Robeson as a star. And I mean no bullshit big time star. The critical acclaim he would receive from playing this iconic role would follow him through a career that would span 
decades. And that is too expansive to discuss in an episode that is not about him. But look into it if you haven't, please. The overt racism of the Hayes office and the covert racism of the director who was condescending to the actors and demanded that the extras that he brought back from Haiti darken their skin in order to make clear the distinctions between the black people of the Caribbean and the black people of the United States. Specifically, to quote Paul Robeson biographers, they asked a native African chieftain to darken his skin in order to give the audiences the distinct safe differentiation of color. I don't know if Freddie had picked up on this trend, but it seemed that wherever she went, colorism followed. It was this experience and the film that I will discuss following this that established Freddie Washington and Paul Robeson and propelled them both into longtime civil rights activists. The film opens on a congregation in the throes of a preacher's sermon, singing and dancing happily, and Brutus Jones in the back room saying goodbye to his dark-skinned girlfriend, who was going to miss him terribly while he's away at his new job as a Pullman porter. I make the distinction of her skin tone because it will come up again later. As Brutus leaves the church, the congregation sings him off, hugging and smiling ear to ear. Once on the train, he befriends Jeff, a fellow Pullman porter played by Frank H. Wilson, and Jeff shows him the ropes. He develops a taste for the finer life and is introduced to Jeff's light-skinned girlfriend, Undine, played by Freddie Washington, who is flirting with another man when her character is first introduced, which Jeff quickly remedies by punching the guy out. Undine and Brutus begin a romantic relationship behind Jeff's back, and so far, the contrast between the life that Brutus led and the life that he will lead is clear. Undine wears her hair perfectly coiffed and finger-waved, and it's glamorous clothing. She excites him with her worldliness as opposed to his woman back home who loves him unconditionally and would do anything for him. Her kind of seemingly elevated lifestyle would incite anger in any woman who has been left for another woman. But the fact that he left his dark-skinned woman for a light-skinned undine cuts deep for all of the dark-skinned women who've been called ugly or undesirable or less desirable than a light-skinned mixed-race woman because of her closeness to Eurocentric beauty standards. Even how differently they dressed the two women and how they put one in a simple, worn dress in her hair, untended, sweating, and not speaking English very well, while Undine wears tailored clothing, perfect hair, and speaks perfect English, which makes it clear that this mulatto woman is far superior to this full-blooded black woman. This is house nigger, field nigger level of old, but it still permeates many facets of our society today. And so already, and maybe unbeknownst to Freddie, her skin has been weaponized and has made her a target deep within the black community. Though she be above the dark-skinned woman because of her proximity to whiteness, she is still a nigger. And so the screenwriter really drew her in these broad strokes, feeling complete comfort over sexualizing her character, but also giving her this uncontrollable impulsivity. Like in the scene after Brutus breaks up with her, she and her actual boyfriend, Jeff, have dinner at a nightclub with Brutus and a woman he brings as a date. And Undine immediately insults her hair and her clothes and then attacks her physically. And the difference in the elevated version of Undine and the version of her who can beat up a woman and fight off the crazy people who try to stop her is the essence of the tragic mulatto. Freddie's character is plagued by her Negro blood and it causes her to behave animalistically. 
I think this is a good point to note that this differs from the play and is the invention of the screenwriter. But to keep this moving forward, Brutus soon joins a craps game, which goes horribly and results in him killing Jeff, and Brutus ends up in prison. Then he escapes, and which woman do you think he runs to when he's in trouble? Not Undine. No, she's only good to fulfill his lust. He goes back to the dark-skinned woman, Dolly, who I didn't mention is played by Ruby Elsie, the iconic operatic soprano. Dolly helps him escape the country. I'll say that again. Dolly helps him escape the country because black women are always saving the undeserving. But this is another distinction between the two women in his life, whereas Dolly represents strength and resilience, a resilience that is placed on black women all too often. Undine represents a more flighty and unpredictable woman, weak-willed because of her proximity to whiteness. Later, Freddie would become conflicted about her role in this film, and though it did well among the white press, the African-American press would be much harder to win over, though they had to support it because it was a movie about a black emperor who lords over land, however animalistic the portrayal. Though one writer wrote a letter to the New York Amsterdam News, a prominent African-American news publication, vehemently denouncing the film and its portrayal of black people. He says... To paint the Negro, the Negro woman, as dissolute and immoral and the island Negroes as superstitious savages may be pleasant for whites, but it is intolerable for self-respecting persons. Notice he made the distinction between whites and self-respecting people. The release of this film was controversial, what with the word nigger being used, but it sold out in theaters in Harlem and in Midtown, but the week that it was supposed to be released in the South, there were almost 40 lynchings in retaliation to such a film being shown. And United Artists began pulling the film out of theaters all across the country and making ridiculous cuts of things that offended certain audiences until it was basically nothing but a shell of what it could have been. They chalked the film up as a loss and a failure. But it led to the biggest film opportunity of Freddie Washington's career. She was riding a high, enjoying the success of being a movie star. After dating Duke Ellington for some time, she soon realized that he had no interest in marrying her. So she began seeing Lawrence Brown, a jazz trombonist and Duke Ellington's band. He and Freddie married in 1933, and before the ink was dry, and before they had a chance to honeymoon, Freddie was off to Jamaica to shoot another film called Drums in the Jungle, in which she plays a voodoo priestess, a character not unlike all the characters she played up until this point. As wealthy and intelligent as the white people she's around, but the Negro blood stops her from being able to live the life that she knows she deserved. This film was actually banned in the U.S. for being too risque for commercial audiences. I think it's interesting that Freddie often wondered why people would question her allegiance to black people, her people, but would accept film roles like this. Now I understand that it was a different time, and she didn't have much of a choice and things of that nature, but there is a pattern here that she could have broken before she dug herself so deep into a hole. And sure, in some cases, and maybe early in her career, it could be chalked up to young age and inexperience, but she was 30 years old when all of this was happening. She possessed better discernment skills than this. But it was around this time that she began to speak out about the injustice that African-Americans faced in America. 
And she realized that her being one of the, quote, pretty race girls, unquote, would not bode well for her career. After all, how many times can you beat the same horse before it's just dead and overdone? Well, when you're white, the limit does not exist. But Freddie was not just white. And everyone knew it. She went to the studio bosses with her complaints about the casting of white women roles meant for mulatto women and for the treatment of African-Americans in this country. She was not silent at all about the evils of Jim Crow and the evils of the South and about the major studios doing nothing to improve race relations and only further exacerbating the negative stereotypes that African-American actors have been fighting against forever. This was all happening while casting for a new film was going on. As I mentioned earlier, casting black women in roles meant for mixed-race women was extremely rare. Director John Stahl had to defend his right to cast a mixed-race woman in the role of Piola. He said, This girl is the daughter of a colored mammy, and this point obviously makes it impossible to use an established screenplayer or, in fact, any girl of Caucasian birth. Such a thing, so to speak, would simply not go down with theater audiences. A film that Freddie was being considered for, but with the resistance of the film's producer, Carl Limley Jr., and his studio, Universal Pictures. Freddie almost lost out on the biggest role of her career because she dared speak out on the injustices African Americans have faced in this country. Sound familiar to a 2018 audience? The film was Imitation of Life, a 1934 drama based on the 1933 Fanny Hurst novel of the same name. It stars Claudette Colbert, Warren William, Louise Beavers, and Freddie Washington. Imitation of Life follows B. Pullman, played by Claudette Colbert, who struggles to stay afloat and a working mother after her husband died and she must take over his business, when Delilah Johnson, played by Louise Beavers, accidentally shows her to her house and convinces B. to give her a job as a housemate in exchange for room and board for her and her daughter Piola. Piola, played by Freddie Washington, and B's daughter Jessie, played by Rochelle Hudson, develop a close friendship as they all live together throughout the years, and Piola struggles with her biracial identity. The film opens with B. Pullman trying to bathe her daughter Jessie, which has proven to be a very difficult task because of Jessie's young age. It is revealed that B. has been trying to run her late husband's maple syrup business when a knock at the back door interrupts her mom duties. Then it is Delilah answering an ad she thought that B. had put in the paper, but Delilah is at the wrong address and must go across town. But B. says there's a streetcar that'll take her there in 10 minutes, to which Delilah replies... We has to walk, alluding to the fact that African-Americans were not allowed on public transportation. But Delilah gets a whiff of their situation and offers her maid services to B for room and board because B couldn't afford to pay Delilah. And then Delilah meets Jessie. And the first thing the two-year-old does upon meeting Delilah is point to her and say, horsey, likening this larger black woman to an animal that she wants to ride. And Delilah apologizes for her size after she was insulted and she still works for them. The film's views on blackness are mixed, but this certainly isn't a good start. When Delilah introduces her daughter, a young Piola, B looks utterly confused. Then Delilah explains that Piola's father was a real light Negro, and so Piola looks white. She enters the house 
so timid and shy, not speaking until asked. And when she does speak, her dialect is much different from her mother's southern dialect. It's much more northern. And while the adults negotiate Delilah's job, young Jesse, who just a moment ago likened Piola's mother to an animal, goes and stands next to Piola, imitating Piola's stance, basically pinned against the door and holding Piola's hand and touching her dress, happy to have a friend. Years pass and the girls are older and best friends and B has opened a restaurant with Delilah's pancake recipe, which we'll talk about at length another time. But for now, I'm focusing on young Piola and Jesse and the successful boardwalk pancake shop. They get sent off to school while preparing for some tests on countries and their capitals. And moments later... Piola runs back into the pancake shop distraught. She's crying and crying, and when they ask her what's wrong, she says she's upset because Jesse called her black. And B scolds Jesse for this and apologizes, but Delilah stops him from apologizing because she is black. And Piola screams, I won't be black, I won't be black. You did this, you made me black. Crying and yelling. This is the plight of Piola. Her Negro blood foils the life she wishes she could live, one without troubles, the American dream. There's another scene in which it is raining very hard, and Delilah decides to take Piola's rubbers and umbrella to school so that she doesn't get sick. And when Piola, who looked like she was having a grand time in school, sees her big black mother through the window, she hides her face. And the teacher tells Delilah that there are no colored children in her classroom, so she must be mistaken. And that's when Delilah spots Piola. And you can hear a pin drop. And when the teacher excuses her, Piola takes off running, screaming how much she hates her mother. You can see how heartbroken Delilah is from this. And the kids start whispering, I didn't know she was colored. And Delilah asks, was she passing again? This is the tragedy of the mulatto in this film. Piola's skin is so light that she can fool everyone into thinking that she's a white person. But her mother, the woman who has taken care of her and loved her despite her constant unhappiness. Years later, they've all become rich and live in a fancy house. Only Delilah and Piola live downstairs, of course. And B is throwing a party and everyone is dancing and laughing and drinking. And Piola, now an adult, is off on the side Sadly watching the whole affair, she reads instead of dancing because no one will dance with her. And when Delilah, who looks filled with joy, offers to dance with Piola, Piola runs off to her room. And she says, I want to be white like I look. And when Delilah tries to comfort her child in the only way she knows how, Piola scolds her for calling herself Mammy instead of speaking properly. She's constantly embarrassed by things out of her mother's control, never mind the fact that her mother has become wildly successful and rich. She's still a nigga, and as long as she is alive and hanging over Piola's shoulder, Piola's blackness is an escapable punishment. And so Delilah offers her a solution to her unhappiness. She offers to send Piola to the finest Southern school because money is no object and because she wants Piola to embrace her blackness and be around her own people because she cannot fight who she is. This reduces Piola to tears. I'd like to pause this analysis for a moment to say that all of this that I've just described 
is only secondary to the plot of Claudette Colbert's finding love in Warren William because while they're falling in love and happy and seemingly oblivious to the problems of the world, Viola seems in a different film in which her blackness is surrounding her and Delilah seems to provide the mammy brand of comic relief catering to the white woman, helping her in romantic pursuits and basically going yes sir and no sir, which feels superfluous, but of course had to be included while also being basically the star of this film. But back to Piola. She agrees to go to the nice school down south like Delilah wants, but she leaves the school for no reason at all, and Delilah has to find out through a note because Piola doesn't come home. She's worried sick, and so she and B search for days until they find Piola working in a fucking restaurant, even though her mother is well off and she doesn't need to. And she looks happy until she spots Delilah, who is so glad to have found her. And Piola pretends she doesn't know who Delilah is, even getting the manager of the restaurant involved. She says horrible things about Delilah until B walks in and scolds her and Piola runs home, scared out of her mind. Which goes to show the difference in how she respects the two women. The difference in how she looks at this white woman as something to aspire to and something to be respected, even though B wouldn't be successful if it hadn't been for Delilah. But none of that matters to her. This is truly the most heartbreaking scene in the film. And I think you should hear a bit of it. I can't go on this way any longer. I can't give up my baby. I bought you. I nursed you. I love you. I love you more than you can get. You can't ask your mammy to do this. You've got to promise me, mother. I'm your mammy, child. I ain't no white mother. It's too much to ask of me. I ain't got the spiritual strength to beat it. I can't hang on no cross. And the worst part is, Piola doesn't stop there. When Delilah gets home, she says something horrible, that she wants to go away, start a new life, have her mother let her go forever. She wants her mother to forget her and let her live her life, and we can only presume that she means life as a white woman. Then she just leaves. Delilah is heartbroken, and she says, You know, Miss B, I love my baby. She won't ever come back. And B tries to connect this to her life with her daughter, saying if she ever did anything to upset her not to run away, but it's not the fucking same. And that's the tone deafness of this film, because it tries to be a very woke, feminist type of film, but it's missing the intersectionality. It's missing the understanding that this is something that these white women will never understand. And yet they try to relate it somehow and show that we're all the same, but it is really insulting because we're not the same. And were it not for the treatment of African Americans in this country, were it not for the likening of black skin in animals and something subhuman, this situation would not be a thing. The fact that B can watch from a safe distance, knowing everything in her life is seemingly falling into place while Delilah's life falls apart, is white feminism at work. And this film has been lauded as some of the earliest feminist cinema in existence. But I digress. Back to the movie. Then Delilah falls ill of heartbreak, of course, and sits on her deathbed planning her funeral. And girl, what does this white lady do? tells her that she's going to be married and then calls her a big mountain lion as a compliment. And on her deathbed, a hymn plays and she calls for Piola over and over. 
The plight of the black woman is the upside here. Though they had a weird way of getting to that end goal, the idea that blackness isn't a curse or a bad thing and Piola should feel bad about rejecting her heritage because by trying to pass, she killed her mother. Her complete rejection of her heritage is irreversibly punished and not rewarded with some redeemable ending in which she can have it all. Piola shows up to the funeral, distraught and calling her mother and asking for her forgiveness to the casket, saying that she didn't mean it and that her mother's death was her fault. Side note, this is the grandest fucking funeral in existence, complete with parade horses and carriages and men escorting her body with knives and dressed to the nines. Piola says, she worked for me, slaved for me, always thought of me first, never herself. Then the Aunt Delilah pancake flower goes national and blows the fuck up, selling 32 million packages. Piola goes back to school like Delilah wanted. And the film ends with Jesse and B in their even more luxurious than before home, reminiscing about the first time B and Delilah met one another. The critics raved about this film. It was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Assistant Director, and Best Sound Mixing, all of which it lost, but still, that's an amazing feat for a race film. And for the filmmakers willing to tackle this subject matter in the first place, especially in 1934, Variety said, Imitation of Life is a strong picture with an unusual plot, but neither the white women nor the negress derive much joy. And because of their daughters, the most arresting part of this of the picture and overshadowing the conventional romance between the late 30-ish white widow and Warren William is the tragedy of Aunt Delilah's girl, born to white skin and Negro blood. The New York Times said, on the whole, the audience seemed to find it gripping and powerful, if slightly diffused drama, which discussed the mother's love question, the race question, the businesswoman question, the mother-daughter question, and the love renunciation question. Of the race question, promised to be the most interesting. But the photo play was content to suggest that the sensitive daughter of a Negro woman is bound to be unhappy if she happens to be able to pass for white. In general, Everyone agreed that Freddie Washington and Louise Beavers stole the show. The African-American press, however, would be much harder to win over. Many of them were outraged of this black woman so openly aspiring to whiteness in rejection of the rest of her heritage. Many were upset by the stereotypes, mostly from Louise Beavers. Sterling Brown's takedown of Imitation of Life, stating that this picture breaks no new ground, and the tragic mulatto who adds to the cross borne by the long-suffering saintly mammy is likewise a fixture. She is so woebegone that she is a walking argument against miscegenation. Her cheap yearning to be white is contemptible surrender of integrity. But on the whole, they had to agree. This was a fine film, and Freddie Washington had proven herself to be a great dramatic actress. Mercer Cook said, No picture has been as effective as propaganda favoring the American Negro in his struggle for recognition as a human being. The Pittsburgh Courier wrote in an article about Freddie Washington's Hollywood takeover, Uncle Tom has dropped his hat, Aunt Jemima has removed her bandana, Piccaninnies are wearing shoes, and slowly but surely... Hollywood films are growing up. 
directors thought only in terms of plantation themes as a vehicle for featured colored players. Religious fervor was the only emotional expression the Negro seemed capable of. Singing and shouting his only mediums. Real art was born in the Negro. The most tragic situation, the greatest conflicts, the most dramatic phases of our racial life. Those concerning the mulatto were ignored, overlooked altogether. In imitation of life, Freddie Washington utters a cry. I want the same things other people enjoy. That found an echo in the hearts of 12 million smoldering Negroes throughout the United States and probably has been their so-called emancipation from chattel slavery. Actress though she be, Freddie Washington expresses the desire for freedom and equal justice in this picture that is more convincing. So for whatever this picture may have been in terms of representation, it started a conversation. It broke down barriers. It opened doors. It played sold-out shows across the country for black and white audiences alike. Everyone was flabbergasted at Louise's and Freddie's ability to transcend the poorly written dialogue and make their characters come to life. Things were looking up for Freddie, right? Wrong. Here's where the tragedy of passing comes in. Freddie was a proud black woman. She didn't want to be white. And if anything, her white skin was a burden because it separated her from her people. But after this role, Piola and Freddie became interchangeable in society. And no matter where she went, Freddie couldn't shake Piola. A Chicago Defender article in 1935 stated, So realistic is her performance that many theatergoers have wondered if her screen role does not actually express her own attitudes toward life. One black fan actually wrote to her, Anybody who looks as white as she did should pass. Not because I believe they, white people, are better than colored people, but I believe your chances are better if you could pass for white. Your mother should not have stood in your way. If this was in real life, you could pass for white and play the part of Mae West and make billions of dollars. She couldn't shake the feeling that people thought that she hated herself, that she hated her Negro blood. And she spent so much time explaining that Piola was simply a character that she played and nothing more. That Freddie Washington cared about her people, loved them, understood the plight of being Negro in America, and wanted to fight against those injustices. Washington said Piola was created by white people and is its air conception, not mine, of the problems that our girls face when they are light enough to pass, and that managers, producers, and film executives have tried to get me to pass for white in order to get the break they claim I deserve, but after some very scathing reviews disparaging her character, Freddie had to make a public statement in defense of herself. She says, why should I have to pass for anything but an artist? When I act, I live the role I am assigned to do. If that part calls for me to be the West Indian half-caste, a Spanish, or a Creole maiden, a French woman, a lady of great social distinction, or a prostitute, how can I or anyone essay such roles with the bugbear of national heritage constantly dangled before my eyes? I don't want to pass because I can't stand insecurities and shame. I am just as much colored as any of the others identified with the race. I don't doubt the motives of Freddie's actions in the years after Imitation of Life, but I will say that she was extra fucking black and also trying to combat this Piola narrative, and I don't think that can be written off as a mere coincidence. Freddie, who only begun making films eight years prior, made her final film in 1937. 
It was 20th Century Fox's One Mile from Heaven, in which she plays a nurse who adopts an orphaned white child and engages in a nasty custody battle with the child's biological mother, which was another race film milestone, and 20th Century Fox executives were certainly capitalizing off the success of Imitation of Life, wanted to see just how far they could push the limits of the conversation surrounding race without tipping the scales. After this film was over, Freddie went back to her stomping grounds in New York City to focus on theater and activism, her true passions. She was disillusioned with Hollywood. She was too beautiful to play the maid, the only roles that were available for black women at the time, and she wasn't dark enough to be believable in an all-black race film. But after the things she saw and the way she was treated, she knew she had to help the black folks who were still working there. So in 1937, she helped found the Negro Actors Guild, which was created during the height of the Harlem Renaissance to create better, equal, and fair opportunities for Negro actors. They wanted to rid Hollywood and New York of stereotypes and reshape the Negro actor in the eyes of the audience. Noble Sissy served as the Guild's first president and Freddie as its first executive director and secretary. She had finally found her calling, something to keep her going. She dedicated the vast majority of her life to this organization and its members, which started very small, but by the time it was dissolved in the early 1980s due to increasing integration, over 700 actors had been members at one time or another, including Ethel Waters, Bill Bojangles Robinson, Lena Horne, Hattie McDaniel, and many, many more. But at its start, it ignited in Freddie a fire she couldn't put out. In 1938, Freddie Washington wore a black armband in support of the NAACP as they held a rally in New York City against lynching. She rallied hard for voting rights and desegregation and worked closely with Walter White, the NAACP's president at the time. Now that she had no Hollywood career to lose, she wouldn't have to censor herself though she continued to act in New York. In 1939, she starred alongside Ethel Waters in Mamba's Daughters, which I may have mentioned was iconic and a watershed moment for dramatic roles for African-American actors. But her activism took center stage. Though, in 1940, while Mamba's Daughters was touring, she stopped the Washington Civil Rights Committee from boycotting Washington, D.C.'s leading theater, The National, which Mamba's Daughters was slated to perform at because it didn't allow black patrons. She basically said that if they boycotted, it, it would prevent all the black artists who were on the tour from succeeding, which seems kind of shady to me. I don't know what the situation was or what her situation was financially, but maybe that has something to do with it because it seems like the exact kind of thing she would fight for and would stand with them on, and yet she didn't. Maybe this kind of dilemma which followed her for the entirety of her career was too much for her? But in 1942, she began writing for The People's Voice, her brother-in-law, Adam Clayton Powell's publication. She wrote theater critiques and also served as his entertainment editor. She was notoriously hard on Mammies and Uncle Toms and other stereotypical performances by African-American actors. But one comedian took great offense. Comedian Tim Moore was offended by the attack on his and other black comedians' work by a fellow black performer and pointed out the fact that Freddie was the pot calling the kettle black, citing her role in, of course, imitation of life. But Freddie, who had been ready for this kind of thing, replied to his concerns with this. The fact is that 10 years ago, we were a slumbering people standing still with no particular knowledge of the plight of our unfortunate brothers in far-off lands or at home, for that matter. There was a depression going on, and each individual was interested solely in buttering his own bread. 
it is hardly necessary to try to point out the terrific worldwide changes which have taken place since that time. Unprecedented attention has been given to the Negro since the war began because of the fact that we are theoretically free but actually part slave under a vicious system which allows representatives of our government to stand on the floor of Congress and orate about our lack of responsibility, culture, education, etc. in order to keep us from the polls in the South to segregate our men and women in the armed forces, to perpetuate damnable Jim Crow laws of the South, which are now invading the North to keep us in the ignorance of the rich history of the American Negroes. On the one hand, she's right. It was a different country in 1934, but that doesn't excuse her actions. And on the other hand, I can understand where Tim is coming from. It's hard enough to make money while black in this country, but it's even harder to do what you love and make money and be black. The pickings were slim, and even then we knew the system was broken. Freddie wanted to be part of the solution. She lobbied hard for the dire anti-lynching bill, which never passed in the House or the Senate. She was an avid supporter of and campaigned hard for the re-election of Franklin Roosevelt. She helped organize the cultural division of the National Negro Congress and continued to fight for fair treatment of African-American performers, stopping a remake of a horribly racist Uncle Tom's Cabin with a particularly scathing letter to MGM, which suggested that by making this film, they wanted us to move backward and denounce many, many many other films like this, putting out scathing statements each time. One in particular, about the film Birth of a Nation's re-release, remains relevant today. She said, When you realize how long it took the movie industry to make up its mind to handle the question of anti-Semitism, it gives us an idea how long we will have to wait for someone to protest from the screen Negrophobia in this country. What we get instead is a re-release of the anti-Negro relic, Birth of a Nation. The Dixie Distributing Company, located in Atlanta, has plastered the South with this disgrace to the nation. This is Southern anti-Negro propaganda from 1947. Whip up hate against Negroes, and it becomes easier to keep them from exercising their right to vote. It makes it easier to get away with lynching a Negro. Again, I ask the question— Who said art is not in politics? It is indeed, and it is here to stay. I agree completely with Freddie. It only took her making her biggest film of all time after performance in childhood to find her voice and her true purpose, but no matter how late or how early she was to the fight, she showed up and she showed out for all of us. Freddie Washington retired from the People's Voice in 1947. She got divorced and remarried some years later and lived out the rest of her years in Connecticut. Whether she was forced there because of the Hollywood blacklisting or because she was genuinely tired and could see the wave of crazy conservatism heading toward America is a mystery. Freddie Washington died on June 28, 1994. She was 90 years old. She was offered many movie roles years after she left Hollywood, but turned them down because she had no interest in playing a tragic mulatto anymore. In 1975, she was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame. She could never shake Piola. No matter how many articles she wrote or interviews she did or times she said it, people always wondered if her blackness was a plague to her. But I think, despite the many people believing the opposite, that Freddie Washington was a proud black woman and had to fight hard to prove that to everyone— But I don't weep for Freddie Washington's short-lived Hollywood career. 
She didn't die tragically young or in obscurity. She lived a long, full life fighting for what she believed in, fighting for Black artists and for the fair treatment of Black people in America. I weep because this isn't a bigger deal. I weep because I was oblivious to her accomplishments and to what this woman sacrificed from such a young age for people like me. There are many great Freddie Washington quotes that I could end this with, but I think this one really sums up her plight. I am an American citizen, and by God, we all have inalienable rights. And wherever those rights are tampered with, there is nothing left to do but fight. And I fight. How many people do you think there are in this country who do not have mixed blood? There's very few, if any. What makes us who we are are our culture and experience. No matter how white I look, on the inside, I feel black. There are many whites who are mixed blood, but still go by white. Why such a big deal if I go as Negro? Because people can't believe that I am proud to be a Negro and not white. To prove I don't buy white superiority, I choose to be a Negro. Thank you, Freddie Washington, for all you did. I will never again forget you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Blacklist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and like this podcast on iTunes and leave us a five-star review if you feel so inclined. I know it seems like such a small thing, but it does go a long way. And if you want to learn more about us, please like us on Facebook at The Black-List and follow us on Twitter at The Blacklist Pod. And also feel free to follow my personal Twitter at Mariah in Woods. All episodes of The Blacklist are written, narrated, edited, and produced by Mariah. I would me until next time.